So here's what I want to do. I want to preach on the reading from uh, Exodus and on the gospel. And I want to lead into this sermon by talking about something that I talk about often, and that's the, the way in which Episcopalians understand what is authoritative in uh, the deep questions of uh, Christian faith and belief. And in the Anglican Communion and in the Episcopal Church, we have a three-way test, or we call it the three-legged stool, the Bible, the tradition with a capital T, and our human reason and experience. And these questions come up uh, in the readings uh, that I'm going to preach on, so I thought I'd uh, speak about this in advance and see if I can connect the dots. Episcopalians believe the Bible is central to our understanding, but I would say this isn't true for all Episcopalians, and there are good reasons to do it differently. But the way I'd write it on a piece of newsprint would not be like some do as a pyramid, where we put the Bible at the point, and we put the tradition on this end, and we put uh, reason and experience on that end, but uh, draw, write them as a continuum and understand that uh, in, in that way, because all of them are central to our self-understanding. And when we think about the Bible, we have to remember that the church is prior to the scriptures. The church is prior to the scriptures. And that means that this is our book. And uh, people who's felt experience emotional, spiritual, mental response to the presence and power of God at work in their lives were moved uh, to write some of this down based on the history of their people and how they understood their destiny and what it meant for them. So the Bible is, is very important. I'm sort of getting reacquainted in a deeper way with the Bible again. You know, you go through phases, even the clergy do, and I... I have been reading a lot of the Bible, and I've been reading a lot about the Bible. It's important, though, to read the Bible. I remember the, the rector of St. Matthew's Church, San Mateo, conducted the week-long silent retreat the first year that I was at Neshota House, my seminary. And it was a, it's every year we had a week-long silent retreat. All of the married students moved up into the cloister, and we were there for, nine, for seven days. No talking. No talking. I think the first time that happened, I thought I was going to go crazy. <laughs> and then by the, time, the end of the week, I was sorry I had, we got, I had to start talking again because it's very important. But that was the first beginning of, of learning to live with myself which may be one of the most important tests of all. So the Bible is central to our understanding, and in it we find uh, things that we always see are part of the way we can be renewed with the presence and the power of God. Now the Bible, in my opinion, uh, in one sense, flows from the tradition with a capital T, of the churches prior to the scriptures, I've become more um, convinced of the importance of the church. Herbert O'Driscoll, a 
Ernest may remember this, but about 15 years ago, he, he conducted the clergy retreat, the clergy uh, at uh, St. Francis Retreat Center in San Juan, near San Juan Batista. And uh, he said in the course of his, he, he had been the uh, dean of the cathedral in Vancouver, Christ Church Cathedral. And then he did some other things, and he's retired now. But he had a line in one of his lectures where he said, uh, all, all spirituality worth its salt institutionalizes, which uh, can take some people's breath away, right? Because we like to believe in, in the spontaneity of this and so forth. But how do you begin to say that this flows uh, from a community and how does the community understand the way in which we approach God? And how does the community understand um, what we do with regard to the obedience of the members of the community? Some of that's in the gospel today. So all those things are important, the tradition. But there's another thing that's important, and it's become uh, important in, the, in our common conversation as Anglicans, as Episcopalians. And that is, what is essential and what is non-essential? What's the core? Because my belief is that the, the tradition with a capital T represents the core. And certainly, I would, for me, one of those is the resurrection, right? And the debate is that some would like a shorter list of what the core is, and some would like a much longer list. So the early church uh, had, um, for about the first 400 years, and, and it continues, but the first 400 years was what is core and what isn't core? And what is, in Greek, the word for what is not essential or less important is a word called adiaphora, which means things indifferent. So some places may emphasize certain things and other places emphasize other things, but they share a common core together. And what I think we are driving ourselves crazy with is uh, the whole adiaphora business. And probably there's more adiaphora than whatever the opposite of adiaphora is, you know, aphora. <laughs> right? So that's a, hard, that's, that's a big question. And so some uh, understanding of the tradition is important to be able to engage that conversation. I, I may have mentioned this. When I was in high school in one of my English literature classes, uh, uh, one of the books that we had to read was a book by E.M. Tilliard called The Elizabethan World Picture. And what it was about was it was explaining what the thought world was like uh, in the 16th century, in the 1500s, in England, in the Elizabethan period. So it talked about the great chain of being, and it talked about the way people understand reality. And the reason it's important is that one of the great writers about our tradition, Richard Hooker, who lived in the 1500s, wrote a book called The Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> 
Actually, it was about four or five volumes. I think you can get a two-volume set now. But it was about how he understood uh, the differences between Roman Catholicism, Continental Protestantism, and Anglicanism, what the differences were between them, and why he was making an apology for Anglicanism. And when he wrote, he used the term, we got the three-legged stool largely from him, and he wrote uh, about uh, the, uh, that our human reason is very important, but E.M. what you discover is that in the Elizabethan mindset, uh, reason and experience are one thing. It's not something that we say, oh, you know, nowadays in this touchy-feely world, this is when this used to begin that some of the great Adiaphora people say, uh, you know, uh, when you start getting into experience, that's not true. It's our reason, the processes of thinking that cause this uh, to be important. Well, they happen simultaneously, and after all, you have to think about something, right? You have to think about your experiences and so forth. Our problem is, is that all of us believe our experiences are the center of the universe. That's the, one of the great public di uh, dilemmas in the culture in which we live in. That's what we believe, you know, my experience is supreme. And we need to, we need to uh, uh, focus on that and go with what that is. But it's probably much more deep than that. So let's see if any of these things occur in, in reading from Exodus or from Matthew's Gospel. Today we have the story in Exodus of the Passover. Now, uh, what precedes this and it even begins this reading is that the Passover is kind of an 11th hour creation by Moses and Aaron to inure the people of Israel and Egypt from being killed by the terrible plague that God is going to send on everybody in Egypt. And so now then we have a very, very precise description of exactly what it is that you're supposed to do to do this. Well, I think the first one was probably a little helter-skelter, don't you think? And maybe didn't have the pre pre precision that we're reading about today. This is old Anglo-Catholic language, but it sounds like in this reading from Exodus, we're reading ritual notes on how to do the Passover. There was a famous book in the old days called Ritual Notes. It explained all kinds of things, like the presider should take his or her handkerchief and put it in the girdle, which is the rope around your waist behind, so it can conveniently be reached in the course of the liturgy. Ritual Notes, right? So this is what we have. Now here's the thing. Uh, this uh, liturgy or this action, one of the definitive central things to, the, to, to, to Israel, to, to the tradition out of which we come, was done 41 times before they got to the promised land. If you think about this. While they were wandering in the story, in the narrative. And what that means is that a lot of this was worked out in the course of the wandering. 
And I would make a connection between that reality and the way in which the church and the tradition with a capital T has, uh, be, has always tried to work out its understanding in some what appear to be fixed forms, but have some implication with regard to all of us being on the journey and uh, seeing the relevance of what we're reading about in every day and every time. So the Passover and the story in the reading from Exodus conceivably could have been solidified uh, much, much longer after uh, Moses and Aaron were around, right? In fact, I would guess most biblical scholars, Old Testament would tell you it's probably around uh, the 500s BCE or somewhere that this stuff got put together in a, in a real uh, solidified form. And that's what we're reading and we, we, we see that it developed from the Babylonian captivity, where the people who had been doing this over and over and over again said, we got to write this down and let, it, let, let our children know what went on and what, what you're supposed to do and how you do it. So maybe that's some reason why the tradition is important. It's also fair to say that all of us in our, ver in our families and in the, the institutions that we have been part of over our lifetime have their own traditions as well. And so we do things according to the traditions that we have received from those colleges, universities, you know, business organizations. Uh, all of those things influence the way people understand what tradition is, you know. And we always have to fight the battle between what the tradition is and what traditionalism is. Because most of us get hung up in the traditionalism idea. Remember the, the uh, Mason Williams story I told you many times on the Smothers Brothers comedy hour where he's at his mother's house for dinner and she's cooking a leg of lamb and she takes the long bone, you know, that's, and she cuts the sinew and t folds the bone in. And then she takes the roast and she puts it in the pan. And he says to his mother, Mom, why, why, do, you, why do you do that? And uh, she said, well, when your grandmother makes a her leg of lamb, that's what she does. That's what she taught me how to do. So he had to be... Uh, uh, one day he was at his uh, sister's house and she was cooking a leg of lamb and she did the same thing and she said, well, why do you do that? And she said, because grandma does that and uh, that's what she told me to do. And as luck would have it, not too long after that, he was at his grandmother's house and she was cooking a leg of lamb and she cut this in, bent the thing back like that and put it in the pan and she said, grandma, why do you do that? And he said, well, you know, Mason, when your grandfather and I were first married, we didn't have a lot of money, and we didn't have a pan that would fit the lamb. That would, right? So, so, so the question is, searching our lives, what's the difference between the great tradition and traditionalism? And so uh, we're learning the great story, the great narrative, in the Pentateuch about the people of Israel and how they began to understand themselves and how this tradition then animated them uh, uh, moving forward.
And of course, the Christian people who followed Jesus originally were all Jews and they knew this narrative. And they knew what the importance of the tradition is and how we interpret it and understand it in every age. So in Matthew's Gospel, we have uh, Jesus uh, bestowing, at one point, the power of the keys to the disciples. There's, uh, here's an interesting thing. The power of the keys are the power that the church has to bind and loose sins. Whatsoever sins are, ret- uh, are, are retained on earth are retained in heaven, and whatsoever sins ye forgive on earth are forgiven in heaven. Okay? So in, in some places in the gospel, the keys are given to Peter to bind and to loose. In some places, they're given to the apostles. And in this particular passage, they're given to the church, the disciples, all of us. In your own life, think about the power that you have sometimes to bind and loose. And how hurtful it can be because of your refusal to forgive other people, but not just for them, but for you too. Because not being able to do that is a stone in the sandal, as they would say in the ancient Near East. And forgiving people is a hard thing. It's easy to say and hard to do. But here Jesus gives it to the whole church. So we're all to be in the business of forgiveness and loosing as opposed to binding. Some Christian people would prefer us to be a little more binding. You know? And it's not hard to understand why one might feel that way when we see the way human beings have operated from the jump. But the most important thing is here, Jesus is speaking about a practice that will be taken up in various ways in Christianity. And that is, uh, how do we deal with internal disputes in the community? And how do we understand what clean dealings mean? I don't think it's possible for us to understand completely the situation on the ground that produced this section in Matthew's Gospel. Ways of of internally disciplining and calling for obedience and what the reasons were. I don't think we can uh, get back and recover that completely. I think in German biblical criticism that I was taught, it was called the Sittenleben, the situation in life, right? We don't know what the Sittenleben was completely, but I think this about whenever I read this, I've said this often in critical terms. You and I live in a therapeutic culture, and we have been in the therapeutic culture for at least 50 years. Philip Reif wrote his book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic, in about 1967, which he defined the therapeutic culture as understanding life as a manipulatable sense of well-being. That's one way of talking about it. So we have are part of this. And there's no use throwing cold water on it completely because some of it is beneficial. You know, therapy means worship, and it can, in Greek, it can also mean tending a garden. 
So there are lots of ways to think about the upside of this deal. And so I read this and I think to myself, this is really about clean dealings. And when Jesus speaks of bringing one or two others, what he's talking about is something not unlike what Edwin Friedman has talked about, which is triangulation. And how leaders can get caught in a triangle. You know, let's say an is this an isosceles triangle? The one that's equal on all sides? Okay, right. Okay. Okay, so this, what's this one? Equilateral. Thank you very much. I, I was, I've always sat lightly on math or geometry. Yeah, uh, that, that you see, that shows you the problem right there. Well, if, if we go uh, A, B, C, A is the, the leader. A cannot influence what's going on between B and C. They have to influence one or the other. And when they try to do this, they get caught in a triangle. They get caught in a bind. And these triangles in um, our emotional life and our family uh, uh, become interlocked. So it becomes very hard for us to understand how to get out of that because we're in one kind of triangle or another. So there are ways you have to do it. Uh, Jesus, I think, is, is talking about the importance of transparency. Being very frank about what's going on and saying, here's the situation, and you've got people who corroborate that, and they say, how are we going to move forward together uh, in a way that's constructive and doesn't ratchet up the anxiety? What are we going to do? And he goes on to say at the end in, in, in the uh, Book of Common Prayer, at the end of the daily of morning prayer, there's the prayer of St. Chrysostom. Whenever two or three are gathered together in my name, I will be in the midst of them. So maybe we can say something about Jesus being in the triangle with us, which may help us feel at least a little bit less anxious than we were before because um, we may feel the power and the ability to get out of that situation. There was a time, and I guess there still is in certain Christian sects, not S-E-X, S-E-C-T-S, um, where uh, various people in the congregation are deputed to call on another uh, member of the church and uh, tell them to straighten up and fly right. right. It's not an unknown practice in, in lots of places. Uh, sometimes they're not officially deputed to do this. They take it upon themselves. But that's not what we're talking about, and that caricature is what Jesus is saying, that we need to be forthcoming with one another and uh, so forth. I think part of it also has to do, I hate to raise this, this issue, but it's, it's so, it, and that is with questions uh, that the, we're discovering now with the church with regard to abuse, with regard to other kinds of um, bad behavior, financial malfeasance, all kinds of things like that. Often it comes from an atmosphere where nobody's 
connecting with one another in a way that they should and know about the things they need to know about. So I guess the lesson uh, for us today would be to say to ourselves, uh, how do I understand the relationship between the letter and the spirit? Uh, in my own life, uh, do I know the difference between uh, the tradition and traditionalism? How can I uh, be a responsible uh, person in my own relationships? How can I be somebody who is uh, honest and open? You know, when I say this, are, have you ever been around? There's so many not people who you hardly know, and all of a sudden they blurt out their 14 most intimate secrets. <laughs> right? That's not what we mean. But we do mean that uh, we're, we're a transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love. That's what we're called to be. Paul says that today in Romans. You know, when love is the central theme that he's speaking about as the important default position in our relational life. So do some thinking about that this week, and uh, we'll see what comes next week, maybe something that connects. Amen. Amen.